is Think It Through with me, April A. Bear. Get ready to start thinking. I know, it's hard, and you'd probably rather not. But here we go anyway. Hi, everyone. I know I said in my last episode that the topic of trust was going to be a two-parter, but I changed my mind because I get to do that, and this is the second of three parts on this topic. In this short episode, I'm going to focus today on skepticism, because I think understanding what it entails is important when it comes to who or whom we should trust. Skepticism is a huge topic and I won't have time to get into anything but a cursory discussion about it today. But, of course, I'll post links to all my research in the show notes. I'm going to just take a very quick look at the origins of skepticism, what it isn't, what constitutes scientific skepticism, and why it's in your best interest to trust the science. Okay, let's do this. I'm going to begin by talking about what skepticism is not. Skepticism is often confused with denial. If you make a claim to someone and they reply with, I'm skeptical about that, ask them whether they think your statement could be true. Some people would say no, because to them, I'm skeptical means I don't believe you. People label themselves climate skeptics or vaccine skeptics when what they mean is something on the order of, I don't believe in anthropogenic climate change, or I don't believe vaccines are good for us. But that is not what skepticism is about. If your gut reaction to a claim is, I know you're wrong and I'm going to prove it, you're not acting as a skeptic. If whatever research you do is only to find some piece of information you can use to prove you're right because you hate to be wrong, you're guilty of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias, which I talked about in an earlier episode. And those are the very things that legitimate researchers take great pains to avoid. Now, of course, this way of arguing with each other is very common, and we all do it. Even I've whipped out my phone to Google something so I can prove a point, much to my husband's annoyance. But let's be real. I'm not being a skeptic when I do that. I'm just being a know-it-all. At least that's what my husband says. What about someone who refuses to change their mind in the face of overwhelming legitimate scientific evidence to the contrary? Are those people skeptics? Frankly, no. They're denialists or contrarians, and we should label them as such. So, what is skepticism? Richard H. Popkin, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Washington University and the author of History of Skepticism from Erasmus to Spinoza, defines it as the attitude of doubting knowledge claims set forth in various areas. Skeptics have challenged the adequacy or reliability of these claims by asking what principles they are based upon or what they actually establish. Popkins uses the word doubt in his definition, but doubt is not disbelief. It is uncertainty about the true nature of a claim. The scientist who created NASA's Climate Science Investigations website describes skepticism as 
the act of suspending judgment, the opposite of jumping to conclusions when evaluating an explanation or claims. And Brian Dunning, the host of the Skeptoid podcast, says, Skepticism is the process of applying reason and critical thinking to determine validity. It's the process of finding a supported conclusion, not the justification of a preconceived conclusion. That last statement is critical to understanding the true nature of skepticism. It's not about deciding you're right and then going about finding evidence to prove you're right. It's about suspending judgment when considering a claim and looking at the evidence to determine whether it supports that claim. The Western concept of skepticism has its roots in ancient Greek philosophy. The word itself springs from the Greek skeptikos, meaning inquiry, reflection, and observation. Even back then, philosophers argued about what it actually was. Some philosophers said that we could not know the true nature of, well, anything, while others said that some beliefs are more reasonable or probable than other beliefs. Then there were skeptics who said that equally compelling arguments can be given for any point of view. In the 17th century, Descartes refuted some of those early Greek philosophers by observing, I think, therefore I am, showing that the very fact that we are at least cognizant of our own existence makes that existence an undeniable truth. And therefore, those early skeptics were wrong when they claimed that knowledge about anything was impossible. Now, people still sit around and argue about whether or not we actually exist or whether we are, you know, in the matrix or we're the product of some universal being's lucid dream or whatever. Obviously, I'm digressing here, but the point is that philosophical discussions about the nature of reality and what, if anything, can be believed have been around for a long, long time. From those early ideas about what to believe, we've come to understand much more about ourselves and the universe in which we exist. And that has been accomplished largely by the development and utilization of the scientific method, in which we rely on things like observation, hypothesizing, and then experimentation to draw conclusions. While opinions and feelings certainly have a place in our lives, scientists do their best to factor those things out of their inquiry into the nature of reality. It's not about what they would like to be the case, what they hope to be the case, or what they are sure is the case. It's about what they can actually observe, count, provide objective evidence of, etc., they focus instead on validity or the relevancy of the experiment to the research question being asked and reliability, which is the repeatability of the research. In other words, are the findings consistent when other scientists repeat the same experiment? And here's where scientific skepticism comes in. Scientists don't just accept either their own conclusions or the conclusions of others. They examine their own research with a skeptical eye to make sure they have enough evidence to back up their claims, and they review the research of others as well. They are open to other scientists looking at their results skeptically and repeating those experiments to see if they get similar results. If those results are different, 
they look to see why that happened, and that leads to more hypothesizing and experimentation until researchers can determine that their conclusions are as accurate as possible. One scientist in a particular field have determined that there is sufficient, properly collected evidence that is relevant to the question being asked, then they can advance a theory that has a high likelihood of being correct. I didn't say it would be considered absolute truth, because in science it's all about continuing to gain knowledge, and that might lead to another revision of our understanding. When the majority of scientists working on something agree that their data is very likely to be accurate, they have come to a scientific consensus. Are there other scientists working in their same field who might disagree? Sure. And their job should be to keep working, using the scientific method to test their hypotheses and see if they result in different data that leads to a different conclusion. And then that conclusion needs to be looked at and tested to see if it's replicable. Mm -hmm. And the process continues. This is the way in which knowledge advances. When the data consistently point to a specific conclusion and some person decides that conclusion doesn't fit with their worldview and must be wrong, well, unless that person has the necessary education and background to do similar research to prove the consensus opinion wrong, you might just need to recognize that person's opinion is denial, not skepticism. So, now you know what skepticism is and what it is not. How can we harness scientific skepticism to find out what indeed is known about us, our world, and our universe? Even though I have no doubt you are an intelligent and curious person, after all, you're listening to this podcast, you may want to consider that there are some things that you simply cannot know yourself, even with a very thorough Google search or watching a plethora of slickly produced YouTube videos. Some people call that research, but it isn't, at least not from a scientific standpoint. A scientist doesn't generally find their information by simply Googling their research question, unless maybe they want to find out what the general public thinks about that topic. A good researcher does a review of the literature, looking at a vast array of resources to find original research, like reports or papers on their specific topic. Some of these things might be easily accessible by a curious person, but much of it comes from places that the public doesn't generally have access to, like academic databases on library websites. Those resources are not out of reach because they're intentionally being hidden from you. A lot of them are behind paywalls, which means that unless you're a student or a professor, you'd have to pay to access them, but you could certainly do that. And they tend to be written in language that without the necessary educational background, you probably would have difficulty understanding. I mean, even I have problems deciphering some academic papers. Even though it might be difficult for you to find and read original research, there are other ways to get a decent understanding of the conclusions reached. 
There are science writers and some very good journalists who focus on science specifically, and these people have spent years talking to scientists and familiarizing themselves with this style of writing in order to translate these reports into language we can understand. And those articles are easily available on trustworthy websites like Scientific American, NOVA, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And a lot of scientists are also very willing and even excited to talk about their research with the general public. They have their own web pages and Twitter handles. There are a lot of great science communicators out there right now, like astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, planetary scientist Carolyn Porco, physicist Brian Cox, and immunologist Beth Dimov. And because I know these people are highly educated, skeptical scientists and researchers who have been studying a topic for many years, I can put my trust in them to provide me with the best, most accurate information on their field of study. And although, as I said in my last episode, we always take a chance when we trust, these people are credible and reliable enough to make me satisfied that I can trust the information they provide. Which means you could also decide to put your trust in the science, and not in the naysayers of that science who very likely don't use the same processes and methods to come to their conclusions, but instead are using motivated reasoning to cherry-pick evidence that they think supports what they already believe to be the case. And as you now know, that is the opposite of skepticism. So, to sum up this little discussion, the term skepticism is often misunderstood to mean disbelief when instead it means to withhold judgment while investigating the evidence. I recognize the difficulty of putting aside our knee-jerk reactions to claims that conflict with our worldview, but that is a necessary part of skepticism, and one that legitimate researchers have lots of practice doing. Knowing that should help you trust their conclusions. I've put a lot of good articles from credible websites in the show notes, and I highly recommend you check them out to learn more about skepticism. And I hope the information I've given you here will help you think it through.